All right, so I invite you to turn your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 53 uh, this morning. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one near you and the chair in front of you uh, in the auditorium, or perhaps there's some uh, also in the chapel. Isaiah chapter 53. Um, for our sermon this morning, uh, I've in purposely uh, prepared a sermon that's about half the length of normal. Now, I know that's every preacher's famous last words, uh, but I have two and a half pages of notes here, normally at least five, uh, but want to, uh, to try to give you a brief reflection on the final part of Isaiah chapter 53. I'm so glad each one of you could be with us here today. I recognize that in the crowd there are some of you who are regular participants. Uh, in you, you live in the area, you're a member here, or you, you attend here regularly, and you You've been a part of our sermon series. And then there are others, uh, perhaps, who are visiting uh, with a family member or friend. I hope each one of you uh, feel comfortable uh, and uh, get to rejoice with us in celebrating uh, the birth of Jesus uh, here together today. Uh, let me give you just a brief review, review of what we've been doing to prepare our way for the Lord's birth this year in our sermon series. I've been preaching through different Old Testament passages that predict the birth of a very special, chosen, and anointed servant of God who would come and would obey God and provide salvation for his people. Uh, it's important to know that when you study the Bible, it's divided into two halves. There's the Old Testament and the New Testament. Uh, when you get to the New Testament, you're dealing with books that talk directly about Jesus, and they're written within somewhere between 30 to 50 years of the life of Jesus, the Son of God. But when you're in the Old Testament, you're dealing with books that are much older than that. They were written, most of them, you know, somewhere between 500 years before Jesus was born and, and well before that, the 1500 or maybe even 2000 years before the birth of Christ. And so we've been looking at the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament scripture, which was written um, about 700 years before Jesus was born. So the words we're going to consider today were written about Jesus seven centuries before he was even born, which testifies to the authority and the reliability of this book. This book comes from God. It predicts things about Jesus. Not only does it testify to that, it testifies to the authentic nature of Jesus's ministry as the Son of God. He was the powerful Son of God who came to deliver his people from their sins. Now, one of the most important things I can tell you about Isaiah chapter 52 and 53 is that this was originally a song. It was a servant song that would uh, be a prediction of the birth of Jesus. Um, when you look at the song, one of the things you have to know is from whose perspective is this, the song being portrayed. At the beginning of the song, at Isaiah 52, verses 13 through 15, it is God's words about his servant that's going to come. Then in chapter 53, verses 1 through 6, it will be from the perspective of future Israel, the people of God, as they reflect upon this servant of God that will come 
they will say things like, he was sacrificed for our transgressions. Our sins and guilt were laid upon him. And so that part of the song is from future Israel. And then when you get to verses 7 through 12, the song ends by reflecting on what God has to say again, other than one little verse in verse 10 that I'll talk to you about later. So let's read verses 7 through 12, and let's know that this is God, the creator God's reflection upon his son, the servant who'd be born. Verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, living, stricken for the transgressions of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Let's pray together. Father, as we consider this passage today, I pray that you would uh, give me freedom to communicate it clearly. I pray that your Spirit would use it to challenge and encourage us about the true nature and identity of your servant who came to bear the transgressions of many. I pray that this would truly impact us in a significant way this Christmas. In Jesus' name, amen. As I said, those verses I just looked at start by God describing things about his servant. He gives two synonymous expressions about the servant before he gets to the main point of verse 7. And that is that although these things were true of him, this servant, he never opened his mouth. And so we start with those expressions. First, he says he was oppressed and he was afflicted in verse 7. This is God's way of summarizing all of the unjust treatment that would come upon his servant. It was oppression and affliction like no one else would ever experience in this world. I think that this speaks to at least the six unjust, unfair, rushed trials that Jesus endured. Unjust, unfair trials. It also speaks to the whole host of bodily afflictions that Jesus bore. He was struck with fists, he was struck with rods, crown of thorn, placed upon his head. I think it it speaks to all the torture that he endured. 
he continues to describe it in this way in verse 7. He was like a lamb led to the slaughter and like sheep before its shearers. I think with these two pictures, God is describing the willing submission of the servant. When you think of a lamb before the slaughter, you might think that he's emphasizing the unknowingness of the creature. A lamb can go right up to the point of a slaughter and not be frightened at all because he's got no clue what's going on. But that's not the point he's emphasizing about this servant. He's emphasizing the willing submission of the servant. Okay, um, It was the sub- his submission to God's plan for his life that led to his remaining silent and opening not his mouth. You see, Jesus denied every natural instinct for survival. And he suffered as our sacrificial offering without engaging in any verbal or physical resistance. I think that's what it's portraying in verse 7. Then you keep reading in verse 8, it says that God God says about this servant that he will be taken away, he'll be cut off from the land of the living, and he'll be stricken for the transgression of God's people, although none of his contemporaries of the day would have any clue what was going on. I want to draw your attention to the end of verse 8 in this last description. It says he would be stricken for the transgressions of my people. Here I think we begin to see that there was a reason why this servant must come and must die. It would be for, on behalf of the transgressions of the people of God, he would bear their sins. It's at this point today that we can realize that we are all transgressors. We're all sinners. Isaiah had made that clear up in verse 6. He says, we were like sheep going astray. We were all following our own way. Right? We, we all have a drive to go beyond God's boundaries. We wander away, just like his original readers. We wander away in our own words. We wander away from God like sheep with our own thoughts and our meditations of our hearts. We wander away from God with our actions, in our relationships, with friends and family members. We wander away from God in the way we parent, or parenting. This is how we are, even when we are infants. It was so great to see the children up here singing today. Didn't they look so cute? Looks so amazing. It's hard to believe that every one of them is a sinner. Every one of them is a sinner, but that's what the Bible clearly, clearly manifests. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I want you to imagine when you were taking care of a little baby, perhaps it was your child, when you first began to realize that they were a sinner, you know, before they could even speak, you'd fed them, changed them, sung to him every song you could imagine, right? You then placed him down thinking he was sleeping and you tried to get out of the room, but that's when he straightened up his arms, arched his back, and he wailed. And he let you know that although he couldn't talk, he was in control. He was the king and you must submit, you must fulfill his desires. We are all sinners, every one of us, No one has to tell us or teach us how to do this. We are transgressors. 
And when we think of this servant, it says he was stricken by God for our transgressions, for the transgressions of God's people. And then in verse 9, it says that he will be buried with the wicked and a rich man. You see that in verse 9? Now, there are two ways we can take this, or could take this. In the Old Testament, often the, the wicked and the rich are seen in tandem because they are often together oppressing the poor. Together. They're, uh, they're, they're seen as the bad guys, right? Oppressing the poor. And that could be what he's doing here. He's just using rich and wicked synonymously. Or, I think there's another way to take this I'd prefer. I think the original language is interesting here. It seems that this could be translated that he was to be buried with the wicked, as any transgressor, but that he actually is somehow buried among the rich. That's how I would prefer to take this. Of course, this would leave the original readers wondering how in the world, or what in the world, how is this going to be fulfilled? He, he was to be buried among the wicked, but somehow this servant is going to be buried with the rich? But then we fast forward to the burial of Jesus, and we see that since Jesus had no place for burial after his death, except where criminals' bodies would be dumped to rot and to putrefy, there was a rich man by the name of Joseph of Arimathea who offered him his own burial tomb. Now, despite all of this unfair treatment of the servant, it says in the middle of verse 9 that he will not be violent and no deceit will be found in his mouth. And again, we, we pause and we think about this prediction. I mean, what kind of person is this going to be? And especially that last description, no violent, but no deceit will be in his mouth. I mean, what kind of person could you say this about? It's not only that he won't lash back at the people who kill him and brutalize him to say bad things about him, it's no deceit will ever be found in his mouth. That is, he will be perfect in his speech. He will never lie. He will never deceive. This, I believe, is in reference to Jesus. Then we come to the final stanzas in, in verses 10 through 12, and we get to that part where Isaiah, the author, injects his own comment about the servant in verse 10. That's why I take verse 10. I think Isaiah is giving you like his narrator's comment. Other people have been singing about the servant, but now Isaiah wants to tell you something about the servant. Look again at verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord God to crush him. He, God, has put him, the servant, to grief when his, when his soul makes an offering for guilt, God shall see his offspring. He, that's God, shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. Here Isaiah com comments have to do with the will of the Lord and how it progresses through the acts of the servant. He repeats the words, will of the Lord, if you notice it at the beginning and the end of verse 10 for emphasis. And so Isaiah is telling us what God is going to do regarding the servant. He has God active first. God crushes the servant. We talked about this last week. This means to beat something to pieces, to pulverize. 
That is, after God lays on this serpent all the sins and the guilts of his people, he crushes him. Second, God puts his servant to grief. You see that? In verse 10, he puts his servant to grief. I think it's not enough to view Jesus' death as the act or result of wicked men and wicked women. That is true. But the scriptures also portray that it was a part of God's preordained plan that the servant, Jesus, would die for the sins of many. I think fast-forwarding to the apostle Peter, later on in the New Testament, Peter is describing all of this. And when he was preaching, he said this, he says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of whom? Of God, you crucified the Jewish people and killed by the hands of lawless men. I think Peter realized that Jesus' death and crucifixion was a result of lawless men and women who put him to death. But he also knew foundationally, fundamentally, that this was God's doing. And so when it says that God, he put him to grief, I think this is describing God's acts in the death of Jesus. Next, it says that God shall see the offspring of the servant when the servant makes a guilt offering. It speaks of God remembering his eternal redemptive purposes when he sees his servant suffering and he sees all the believers in him who will be redeemed and delivered. Finally, it says, God shall prolong the days of his servant when he obediently makes this offering. And this, of course, again, would be a mystery, right? Somehow, although this servant of God will be killed, he will then enjoy prolonged days. This can only be fulfilled, I believe, in resurrection from the dead. And so according to Isaiah, 700 years before Jesus is even born, uh, we get testimony to the fact that God will raise him up so that he will enjoy prolonged days. But then in verses 11 through 12, we have God's final word. God's final word. He's the final speaker or singer in this song. I think you can see that by in verse 11, he refers to the servant again as my servant. This is God talking in verses 11 and 12. And then in verse 12, he says, therefore I will divide his spoil. This is how God is going to exalt this servant for his obedience. And he specifically describes four things here in verses 11 and 12 that God will do for the servant. Or describes four things about the servant. Beginning part of verse 11, he describes, God describes his suffering. Not only it involved excruciating pain, it involved great anguish of soul. Does God describing the future servant, I think, in his suffering will involve great anguish of his soul. And I can't help but think ahead to Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane when he is considering his pending death and he sweats, as it were, great drops of blood, considering the punishment that he would endure. God describes in the middle of verse 11 the satisfaction of the servant. Near the end of his great suffering, the servant will be satisfied because he has completed the work that God has given to him. 
I prefer one translation that says it this way in the middle of verse 11. He will be satisfied when he understands what he has done. That is, he is satisfied because he's accomplished the atonement for which he dies. Jesus' death then forms a bridge that goes the whole way across. Perhaps you've heard this analogy before of the cross being like a bridge. On one side, sin, death, and hell. On the other side, heaven and fellowship with God. Jesus' death was a sufficient bridge to take you the whole way from one to the other. It didn't stop short. didn't go halfway, three quarters away across. No, his death accomplished the atonement for which he died. Okay? And we can rejoice in that together today. His suffering is not the result of happenstance. And although his contemporaries had no idea what was going on in his death, he finished the work of God and he was satisfied. Then, verse 11, the end of the verse, we learn about his righteousness. Third, we see God describes his servant by attaching an adjective to the word servant. This is the only time in Isaiah an adjective is attached to it like this. And the adjective is righteous. This servant is the righteous one. He's the just one. He is the one that is right with God. But we keep reading, and we see not only is he right, he, this one, it says, will make many others righteous. This future servant that will come and will die will make many others righteous. And men and women, may, may I just say that the word many is extremely important. It's extremely important. It's picked up in the New Testament over and over again. Many significant passages here, but the word many is important because through the work of God's servant, a precise company, numerous, but not everyone in this world will be made right with God. Many will be made right with God through the work of this servant. And that leads me to ask this very serious question to you on Christmas Day. Will you believe in the name of the servant of God who came and who died on a cross and who was raised by God's power so that you could be delivered from your sins? All of us are sinners. We made light of it just a little while ago when we talked about a little baby. All of us fall short of the glory of God. All of us are transgressors. And because of that, We deserve hell. It's only those who believe in Jesus Christ who will be delivered from their sins and will be a part of the many that Jesus has come to redeem. Imagine today standing before a judge and having him or her condemn you to death. But then someone steps forward, an innocent person who loves you so much, he steps forward and he takes your death sentence. That's what Jesus did for you. He died in your place on a cross 
so that if you would believe in Him and you would repent of your sin, today, you could have a restored relationship with the holy God of this world. The text says one more thing here. Verses 11 and 12, the end of verse 11, finally God describes this righteous servant and what He will do to exalt him. God will give him spoil like a warrior king who wins the battle and is given the bounty. This conqueror, this future servant, will receive divinely given rewards at the end of time. Men and women, this is the true meaning of Christmas. Perhaps you've heard the phrase before, he was born to die. And that is true. Jesus was born as a little baby to die for the sins of this world. But another way of saying this would be he was born to make many right with God. If you're not right with God today, there's one way you can be. There's salvation found in no other name. There's no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Jesus is the only way for you to be right with God. Will you believe in Him today? Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. Lord, I thank You for this servant that You predicted would come. I thank You that He came. And that in the New Testament, we read about Jesus' integrity, His actions, His sinlessness. And yet we can also read about the fact that lawless men and women put Him to death. We can see that He died for no sin of His own. But He died as a substitute for our sins. I would pray for anyone here today who's never believed in the name of Jesus. I pray that at this moment they would stop on this Christmas day and they would quietly before you repent of their sin. They would acknowledge their sinfulness to you, that they would understand that it was stepping across lines that you had given to them. May they acknowledge their sin and may they look to Jesus alone for their salvation. I pray that they would believe that you sent a a special anointed servant, your son, to die in their place. I pray that they would be delivered from their sins. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.